Hi, I'm Helen and this is Why Mums Don't Jump, busting taboos about leaks and lumps after childbirth. All the stuff that happens to your pelvic floor that no one ever talks about. Incontinence, prolapse, pelvic pain, problems that affect millions of women. One in three. I'm one of them. I have a prolapse. My pelvic organs fell out of place after the birth of my second child. And if you had told me back then that I would be speaking about this stuff out loud, I would have told you to give your head a wobble. Hi, welcome. I hope you're doing really well. Um, I'm going to talk about surgery today. This week's episode has taught me quite a lot, actually. I'm going to be really, really honest with you and say that I think I've, I've been quite wary about about surgery and I'll explain why. I like to put things into neat little boxes in my brain, you know, like compartmentalise. And it doesn't always work out because obviously not everything is black and white. Um, and I, and I realised that surgery has been in a box in my head marked beware or caution, something like that. And that's partly because my prolapse symptoms have never been chronic Um I knew a surgical fix would likely be temporary. It would carry lifestyle restrictions anyway. And, you know, I've I've learned to manage my symptoms. So for that reason, haven't wanted to do it just now. But also the vaginal mesh scandal made me wary. This poorly tested synthetic netting that's been used and has left many women in chronic pain you'll know probably it's it's been banned now in some countries it's restricted in the UK and uh, a report out in the UK in 2020 the Cumberledge report um, it found that a lot of the the suffering of these women was just ignored or worse than that dismissed as women's problems you know again this normalization of pain for women so there's a lot to not like and a lot to get angry about So that's kind of where my head was at. But having said all of that, I am also sure that surgical options are many and varied. And of course, they're sometimes necessary. And there are also non-surgical options beyond physiotherapy, like the PTNS that we heard about with Sarah last week. So I think it's really important that we don't just lump it all into one box. I don't know. Maybe I'm the only one who did that. I don't know. Um, But it's important that we try to understand how it works. So... That's kind of where I'm at. Um, And I thought I'd do an episode giving an overview of surgery for pelvic floor problems. But for for all the reasons I've just talked about, it's really not as simple as that. It's a complex field. So we're just going to focus on one specialism. And there are several, by the way. I'm not a medical professional, but for a quick rundown, uh, gynecologists deal with all the female reproductive stuff. Urogynecologists specialise in pelvic floor dysfunction. Urologists look at bladder issues, amongst other things. And colorectal surgeons, well, they basically look at the back end. So there's a lot of uh, crossover, obviously, between all those and a lot to cover. But for this episode, I've been speaking to a colorectal surgeon about why you might end up in her office and the sort of treatments that might be offered. She's Julie Cornish. She's based at the University Hospital of Wales in Cardiff and she has a special interest in pelvic floor surgery. She was very patient with me. When we talked on the phone the other week, I tried, you know, I was like, I just want to do an overview of all surgery for pelvic floor. And now I kind of realised that that was maybe aiming a little too high. Um, So let's focus on your speciality. If we're talking 
we, as we do with the podcast about women specifically with um, pelvic floor problems or problems that happen after after childbirth, what sorts of conditions within that framework would you treat? Okay, so there are four main things. So the first one is difficulty going to the toilet doing a poo. And that can be um, sort of constipation, as in it, it's quite a long time in between going to the toilet. So normal is less than three days. Most people open their bowels every one to two days, but if you're going three days or longer, that is not normal. The next thing is that you are going, but when you go, you don't feel like you're fully emptying. And that's mm-hmm. what we call obstructive defecation. Okay. And that can be related to a rectocele. It can be related to pelvic floor muscle dysfunction, what we call dyssynergia or anismus. Um, it could be related to pain. And pain is another thing that comes in. So hemorrhoids typically aren't painful unless they become sort of acutely inflamed. But if you've just got lots of people have hemorrhoids and they don't cause problems, maybe a bit of bleeding. Um, a fissure, so a tear, causes pain. And then the other thing is that you go too often. So you either have diarrhea and you can't mm-hmm. control it and you have urgency and you have to rush. Or actually you have accidents. Um, and then you have things that come out the bottom like prolapse. Yeah, okay. And the treatments for those kind of things, I imagine there's a whole range of different surgeries. Or Is there like one overarching principle? Are you, are you basically trying to shore things up or put things back where they were or is it just a a whole different array of treatments actually most patients you don't sort of go in guns blazing saying that they need surgery and and actually a lot of the things can be uh, managed really well by simple measures but you have to put them together and they take a bit of time so um drinking enough water most busy mums don't drink enough water um, and diet. So again, if you're just snacking or you're grabbing things on the run or you're kind of eating your kids' leftovers um, or you're just having like ready meals because that's all you've got time for, then your diet isn't particularly good and the combination of that can make you constipated. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you're someone who had a tendency to constipation, that might be enough to put you over the edge where actually you just then start to struggle. And if you start to struggle, it becomes painful and then you don't want to go and it just mm-hmm. it becomes a cycle. Um, so diet, um, going to the toilet. So we're designed to squat. Okay. Um, I certainly don't suggest you sit on the toilet sort of in a frog position because that won't do you any good. Um, (laughs) but essentially one of the things we always say is you need to have a footstool underneath Mm -hmm. your feet when you go to the toilet, which I'm sure other people have said. Um, and what it does, you basically open up the anorectal angle and it makes it easier to empty. Then you talk about sort of pelvic floor. So I know you've had a lot of physios on the program and I'm sure everyone should be aware, but do your pelvic floor exercises. And it's not just for Christmas, it's for life, right? So yeah. I think that the difference actually, one of the key is when you have a baby, you're discharged after six weeks from, from obstetrics. But I keep patients essentially for the remainder. Um, so I think unlike sometimes with urogynecology, there's this disconnect of, consequences of having a baby and what happens later on and I see a lot of the consequences so forceps delivery is really associated in my mind with rectocele obstructive defecation difficulty going to the toilet and it's about having that physiotherapy afterwards really important um so we said diet said lifestyle medication don't go for stimulant laxatives and what I mean by that is the tablets so they're 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 a quick fix they're easy to take but actually the bowel over time gets used to them so we talk about having stool softening so um fiber gel is one or if you don't like the sachets you've got psyllium husk or flaxseed or linseed um then you've got movicol or laxido which are osmotic laxatives where you drink them they don't taste that nice but they're okay mm-hmm. um soft is quite a good one actually that's a smaller capsule it's easy to take um keep a bowel diary 
that's really mm-hmm. useful. There's a lot of apps that are out there. So the Bowel app is a free one. It's an IBS tracker. And mm-hmm. there's a really interesting link between um, the brain and the gut, something called the gut-brain axis. So the more stressed you are, the more your stress hormones affect your bowel and can promote um, feel, you know, symptoms of bloating and discomfort or diarrhea or constipation, depending on which kind of a spectrum you are for IBS. And the more uncomfortable your bowel is, actually it's linked with causing depression. So it really is a vicious cycle. That makes total sense. I can really, when you, I've never thought about it before, but I, but I, everybody, or well, I think everybody knows that if if you ever have a really nerve wracking event, I remember years ago being at university and being in a sports event and getting diarrhea the night before because exactly. I was so nervous about it. Yeah. Um, and yeah, of course, everybody also knows when you need to go and you can't, you get really grumpy. And if you're dealing with that and pain on top of that on yeah. a day to day basis, of course, that's going to yeah. not take you to a good place. And we definitely see it for, for ladies who are sort of struggling to hold that sort of urgency, got to go now or can't put it off. The more you think about it, the more anxious you get. The more anxious you get, the mm. more you have to go. So um, a lot of what you can think about for your, for your bowel symptoms is actually a bit of a mindfulness thing. So we talk about different apps like Headspace or just um, cognitive behavioral therapy. And it can just work to calm things down, to allow time. Um, Mm-hmm. So the, uh, the other the other key thing that I, is worse for men, but women do it too, is don't make the toilet like a man cave where you take an iPad in or a book and sit there. Even if you say, I'm not going to the toilet, if you're sat on the toilet, you've had 20, 30, 40 years of telling your body to go to the toilet, you're straining. So, you know, your toilet, much as you want to lock the door and hide away from the kids, it is not a sanctuary. Do not sit oh. on the toilet. Oh no, like, yeah, I was, uh, that has become a bit of a, I'm going to, you know, it has become my sanctuary. I was like, if he can do it, I can do it. I'm in there now. (laughs) Put a chair in there. Okay. Or a, or a stool, but no, don't sit on the toilet. Right. Because even just the act of sitting there can, um, what does it do? It tricks your body into thinking that you need to go all the time. Yeah. So, um, essentially when you are going to the toilet, it's a really delicate balance. Your brain is sending a whole lot of signals and some of those are unconscious, and those unconscious signals and um, relaxation or contraction is happening because your body said, right, this is where you are. You're on the toilet. You're about to do a poo. Get ready. Um, so the only one that's under your voluntary control is what's called the external sphincter muscle. So the outside muscle in that ring. But the internal one, that's relaxing or contracting outside of your voluntary control. Wow. that is. So there's a lot you can do yeah. Before, yeah. before. And so I, I guess I assumed that you would have as a patient, someone would tell you about all of those things you can do before they get to you. Nope. And then you're like, none of that's worked. So now we're ready with, you know, with surgery, because that would be the, the, the next thing to try. So that's not how that works. That would be ideal. That's what we're aiming for. Um, the difficulty is, is that education actually, as much as anything amongst health professionals, isn't there. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a real bias in a way towards bladder incontinence. GPs get a lot of training on it. It's in the medical curriculum. Doctors um, post-qualification get training on it. But if you look at faecal incontinence or bowel incontinence, it's virtually nothing. Um, And actually the treatments for the constipation incontinence, although they're slightly different in what you say, you go through the same pyramid of diet, lifestyle, medication, exercise, Mm -hmm. physio, um, you know, that kind of thing. And that should just be embedded within a, a core culture. So if none of that works, that is presumably that's the point at which there's conversations about surgery. So at that point, you then, if they haven't had it already, you start thinking about different investigations. So um, typical investigations are going to be um, physiology, where you basically, a lot of these unfortunately involve probes in bottoms. It's kind of, 
you know, the, the way it is. By um, its nature. It's not, yeah. it's not painful, but it's not exactly pleasant. Um, so a probe into the bottom and the lady is asked to squeeze. Um, and it produces, depending on which kind they're using, um, a lovely kind of colour diagram that tells you red is sort of high pressure, blue is low pressure, and which bits are working or which bits are working too mm-hmm. much or not enough. Um, so that's anal rectominometry. Then uh, a key one is endoanal ultrasound. And again, that's another probe, and that's looking at the ring of muscles, the internal external sphincter, to see if those are intact. So is there a break in the muscle? Is there any evidence of scarring? So if you've had a vaginal delivery and you've um, uh, or potentially had surgery to the bottom for other things in the past, um, then you might have had some trauma, and that may have been repaired, or actually it may not. Um, and it just looks to see, is that ring of muscles working well? The other one is something called a proctogram, and there's two types. And a proctogram is where you put dye into the bottom. Sometimes there's dye in the vagina as well. And you might be asked to drink something to sort of highlight the small bowel, the internal organs. And then you sit in an x-ray machine on a commode. It's all screened off. No one can see you. And effectively, you're asked to to get rid of the paste, as in trying to approve the paste in a commode. Mm-hmm. Um, and you look to see what's happening structurally with the different organs when that person's emptying. And sometimes you see a big rectocele, and is it emptying fully or trapping? Um, sometimes there's no rectocele. Sometimes there's an internal rectal prolapse or an interception. Sometimes there's an external rectal prolapse, or sometimes it's completely normal. Mm-hmm. Um, the, obviously, it's hard to relax. So occasionally people have this diagnosis of anismus where they fail to just relax, and that's why I don't know how relaxed you'd be sat in a toilet in a in a cold I know, room. I know. I've heard about this before, and I can imagine it is um, a really difficult thing to, yeah. to go through. But obviously, for the right reasons. I think by the time the ladies get there, then actually, you know, we've got a lovely um, radio set of radio officers who are very used to it, and we've guided them through it. And we sort of said, "Look, you need this to make the next step." You know, yeah. So this is what. The weird one is the MRI proctogram because you have to lie flat in an MRI machine. And try and do the same thing. And I don't know if you ever oh, wow. tried to do a poo lying flat. It's not <laughs> oh, that good. Gosh. But no. um, it it's very good at looking at the organs um, of uh, all of them, the pelvis put together. And then we basically take all of those investigations and maybe you might assess someone while they're asleep as well. And you sit down at a, a multidisciplinary team meeting or an MDT. And you say, right, so met the patient what is their symptoms what is their story what do they want from treatment because that's a really key factor it doesn't matter what the tests say it actually matters well what do you want from the treatment and what what are their expectations then you put all the tests in what their effective um, conservative treatments and you kind of say what options are available when you say what do they want from treatment because like presumably everyone just says to be back to where I was before, right? Is that what what sort of things might you expect them to say? Okay, or... so um, depending on your your age and your mm-hmm. physical mobility and your expectations, so you might turn and say, um, you know, for a lady who's 60, 70, 80, um, 60 year olds might want to go, you know, my mom's 60, she's still out dancing and doing fantastic things. Um, so, you know, her expectations are as you or I. But someone who's 80 might just want to not um, be wearing a pad or a nappy. Gotcha. Um, okay. And actually what they're more worried about is having any accidents or maybe they've got like a, a wound in their bottom end because they sit down too much. Um, or they might want to go to the shops or, you know, in very short things rather than going to work and you know going for a marathon or anything. 
And then it's also about how fit they are, because actually some of these conditions happen in people who are have got other things going on. So if you're if you're big, that makes it more likely you're going to have problems. Um, if you've got diabetes, then some of the conditions are more difficult to manage, or you've got a high risk of complications. So that can play a role in terms of what we might offer. Mm-hmm. Okay. So next step after that. <laughs> Then we kind of say, so these are the options. So we go back to the patient because that's really important. And you say, right, it, it, it's rarely a situation where you say, you know, this is the only option I'm prepared to offer you. Sometimes it's actually the patient doesn't want any treatment. So you say what the options are and they go, I don't want that or I don't want that yet. Um, or is there a different option? Uh, and then you kind of go through and you have to kind of explain because the difficulty with this kind of surgery, it's not like cancer where you say, if you don't do this, you're going to die. You're going to die, um, because then you know there's complications and you're prepared to accept those complications. Whereas if I say to you, um, say you've got a, a, a sphincter defect, so you've had a, a, a disruption to that ring of muscle, and you're um, maybe three or four years after your your birth, and you're managing okay, but you're struggling with some things, and the treatment hasn't, like the the physio and everything, hasn't got rid of you completely. I might say, well, okay, so I could offer you a, an operation where I, I try and join back that muscle, but actually there is a small risk that that muscle repair breaks down and you actually end up with a slightly larger hole. Mm. And you might develop a connection between your your bottom and your vagina, which would mean that poo might come through that. Now, that's a very mm. low risk. It might be 1% or 2%, but you don't have that risk if you don't have anything. Then I was going to ask you kind of what is the success levels, but I suppose... It's not that simple, is it? Because again, it depends where you're starting from, yeah. where you want to get to. Yeah. I mean, the, my only reference point personally is when at the very in the very early stages of I'd had a third degree tear and uh, the same appointment for that sort of three months after the baby was born. By that time, I knew I also had a prolapse, and the conversation seemed to be surgery is an option, but it will likely it will only last for. I think it was it 10 years maximum or something like Less that than and then you manage years, it again yeah. um or conservative measures to manage it and for me at that point like 10 years and then having to think about doing something again before I tried these other things wasn't wasn't an option um so is that the same with most of these surgeries that they're not it's not going to be a cure all that lasts forever and you're probably going to have to modify your life afterwards yeah i think to some extent once you've had an injury then you may never get back to normal or you may never get back to normal forever um the difficulty so if someone has a a third degree tear then you may be fine for 10 years and then you might sort of hit perimenopausal type things and then you may start to develop some symptoms again or actually what we often find is people don't necessarily know they've had a, a third or fourth degree tear they just know they had some stitches but then they come to you in their 50s and 60s and start coming with problems so um, there are other alternatives that aren't quite so radical. So have you heard of neuromodulation or sacral neuromodulation? Um, it used to be called sacral nerve stimulation, and it was thought that it literally, um, you put a little electrode uh, next to the um, sacral nerve, which and it was thought that it stimulated the pelvic floor. Um, it's called neuromodulation now because we've got evidence that actually the signals from this go up to the brain and then come back down. And actually, it explains some of um, the the effects because it doesn't just act on the pelvic floor, it acts on the gut. So the gut has, the bowel has a a nerve supply and it modulates some of those. So it's it's a good treatment for fecal incontinence, bowel incontinence. Um, There is, it's not recommended in terms of nice guidance for constipation, 
but there is suggestion that a group of patients may benefit from it as well. But it's minimally, it's not a big risk. There's a test phase, which is literally can be done under local anaesthetic. And if it doesn't work, it doesn't work, but it can work in about 80% of patients. That's amazing. So, I mean, these kind of developments, I guess, are happening all the time. How hopeful are you that there will be some sort of silver bullet surgery or treatment one day? So there are two trials currently ongoing. There is one that's a commercial trial and there's another one that's a Horizon 2020, so a big European one, um, that are actually um, about taking cells, stem cells from muscle biopsies or growing them and putting them into the, the sphincter muscle into women um, and I'm, I'm hoping that we might actually be able to be a centre for it. Um, but uh, yeah, um, the results are encouraging, but it's really, really early days. I'm not even going to begin to start to try and understand how that works, but essentially kind of grow it, growing more, healing yourself from within. Yeah. yeah. I mean, if that works, that'd be amazing. Uh, you mentioned when we started talking about um, sometimes why it takes such a long time for women to come for help in the first place. Tell me a bit more about that. I mean, I think I read somewhere that it's seven years before women even go to the doctor to talk about these sorts of problems, especially with faecal incontinence. Yeah. So I think part of it is it's so stigmatising. I mean, you've, I think you talked about before, taboo than a taboo. Um, and, you know, often people even struggle to tell their partners. So it can be difficult to admit it. And then when they do find somebody, they see a GP and they say this, and they, they may not say, I'm, I'm having accidents. They might say, I've got diarrhea. So the GP will send them in as an urgent suspected cancer with a change in bowel habit. And what will happen now is they'll either be sent for a colonoscopy, which is a camera test of the bowel, mm-hmm. um, or they'll be asked for a poo sample to see if there's any blood in it. And depending on what that shows, they might say, oh, you don't have cancer. Great. And, and then they'll be sent back. And the, and the woman goes, well, yep, yeah, I wasn't asking that. Did I have cancer? What I was asking for is, can you help with my bowel problems? Mm. Um, and then they might go, oh, so you're going to now see to a routine colorectal clinic. And that's like a two and a half year wait. Um, and then you get to a colorectal clinic and you might see a consultant who either hasn't got an interest or doesn't really know, or the hospital might not have a service. Or, you know, there might be a five year waiting list to see that person because there's such a big gap. Um or they see a trainee and if they see a trainee and the trainee it's been two years the trainee will go oh but it's been two years since you had a camera test and you might have cancer i know somebody who had seven investigations Mm. of that in nine years and it is awful really awful and it makes me cross and a lot of it is about signposting clear patient pathways training education and it's something i am strongly advocating and trying to encourage what how do we change that then what is that about how how medical students are trained in the first place or gps or i think there's two parts the one is educating women and men so um i we're trying to sort of talk about whether we um increase something within schools um a lot of the problems that start to develop um happen in sort of teenage years um and then the other one is about educating not just the GPs, it's the health sisters. So I did a talk for some health sisters a couple of years ago. And after the talk on it, um, maybe about three or four of the health sisters came up and said, oh, I've got that. So if they think it's normal, how the hell are they supposed to tell women that it's like not normal and they should seek help? And then, if you really want to get me angry, start talking about all these adverts, the, um, the, the pads adverts where you have like an oops moment and you go, c'est la vie. I mean, how is it c'est la vie to have an oops moment in someone wearing a white jumpsuit looking in the 20s? 
or you know mm-hmm. a glamorous pair of pants that is a period pants but is in fact incontinence underwear because you know just accept it yeah you shouldn't accept it I hear this so often from the women on my social media who will say you know we're so tired of being told yeah you've had a baby that's uh, just what to expect now and and then because no one talks about it you go off thinking right well I never realized it was what I should expect but obviously it is so I'll just try and make the best of it while it makes me absolutely miserable yeah, I think so. There are lots of good, um, well, there's Facebook groups and there are um, charity things. So again, so I'm one of the charity um, trustees for Mazik, um, and the support groups from that. And I would say, you know, if you're worried about your symptoms, find somebody to talk to. You will find that your mom, your sister, your friend, um, you know, somebody will have had these symptoms and, and seek help and don't be put off. Don't just accept it. Because if you meet someone who doesn't have the education training or you haven't got a pathway in place, it, it is not right that you then say, okay, well, I'm going to put up with it. And there's a postcode lottery for services, which is really, really Colorectal bad. specifically or all of these things? So um, I, I work in Wales. There's a slightly different funding stream the way it works. But currently in Wales, as is the only hospital where patients can access this sacral neuromodulation for fecal incontinence. So if a woman has a childbirth injury, she'll be able to see me in clinic. I can offer physiotherapy, she can see a dietitian, see a nurse, and then I can offer um, minimally invasive surgery that has a really good chance of working. Someone living 20 miles down the road can't access that service. And how is that right? And I think we just need to get up in arms and actually demand equal rights for this and, and sort of speak to your minister, speak to your... Um, your local politicians. And get the same offering available in every area. Because yes. you've, yes. um, tell me about the centres that you've pulled together. Somewhere, this is, these are multidisciplinary centres where people can go and be seen by all the specialists at once. Yeah, so, I mean, I'm not the only one doing this. There's uh, plenty of places, but um, essentially what we've tried to do is bring together in a pelvic health hub all of the um, the people that we think are relevant. So we've got pain specialists, we've got urogynecologists, we've got nurses that do pessaries, we've got nurses that deliver um, um, irrigations so or washing out the bowel, um, got myself. And the idea is not necessarily that we see all the patients at the same time because that's not necessarily mm-hmm. feasible. But sometimes if I think I want an opinion from a, a urogynecologist and he's doing a clinic next to me, then instead of me writing a letter taking six months to see the patient um, then writing back to me, me taking another six months to the patient, he pops his head in, has a look and we have a chat. And then that's, say, the year of that patient's treatment. Um, I've taken up far too much of your time. I suppose just if you have any final thoughts about, I know we've sort of said it's not working, the system's not working properly at the moment and what women in particular who have these problems can do to advocate for themselves and make sure that they don't end up stuck in the system or in the wrong office. Um, I think... Essentially, people need to know what's normal. Um, That's the key thing, because if you know what's normal, you know when to look for help. Um, And then think about, because there is a lot you can do yourself, as in look at your diet, look at your um, lifestyle, look at um, your exercise. Physiotherapy is fantastic. It isn't the answer to everything. Um, And you may get some improvement with physio, but, you know, if it's not better or it's not in a good place for you, then do continue to seek help. And also be aware of the fact that things change. So whilst you may have had um, a bit of an issue, got better, just be aware that sort of when, as we get older, things change again. So just just keep an eye on it. Stay healthy. Try not to smoke. Lose some weight. Walk. <laughs> eat good foods. All the stuff we don't do, but we try to. 
Move to Wales. See Dr. Cornish. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I'm Mrs. Cornish because I'm a surgeon. I don't use doctor. Oh, right. I, well, I did wonder that because I've also seen Mr. and Mrs. And I'm like, well, why, why would you not call yourself a doctor if you've gone through all that training? But okay. So essentially, uh, surgeons weren't doctors. They were barbers. Oh, God. This is getting even more confusing. <laughs> what? So it they were considered inferior. So they weren't given the title of doctor. Wow. Okay. Um, and then actually when surgery was considered part of medicine, um, then actually the surgeons went, well, we don't want to be doctors anymore. We're, we're better than that. So <laughs> as soon as you get your first surgical exam, you lose, well, you gain your, your name before. It's, UK is the only country that does that in every other country. Oh, surgeons are called doctors. So confusing. <laughs> right, Mrs. Cornish, thank you very much. <laughs> Tell me I'm not the only one who didn't know that. I learned so much from that chat. Clearly, there's still a lot of work to do, but it's great to know that there are new treatments coming down the line and obviously doctors who really get it and want to help. Mrs Cornish is on Twitter as Jules underscore Cornish, by the way. I'll put some of the apps and things she mentioned in the show notes and uh, I'm hoping to speak to a very nice urogynecologist in the not-too-distant future. So if you have questions for her, let me know. As ever, none of this is intended as medical advice. Next week, it's the ultra runner, Sophie Power, on returning to running when you have pelvic floor problems. And when I say running, I mean serious running. In the meantime, please help to share the podcast. Maybe write a review if you can. It all helps to spread the word. You can support the podcast on buymeacoffee.com forward slash whymumsdontjump. And it can be completely anonymous if you prefer. And you can find me on social at whymumsdontjump or online at whymumsdontjump.com. Bye for now. <laughs>